0: Welcome to this Sunday Forum. I'm Helen O'Sullivan, I'm the chaplain here at St. Paul's Cathedral, Um, and we're very pleased to welcome this morning Margaret Whipp, who um, we crossed over in Oxford some years ago, so it's lovely to see Margaret again. Uh, Margaret's lead chaplain at the Oxford University Hospitals Trust, and was a consultant oncologist for many years. And we're going to hear about uh, her book, The Grace of Waiting. Advent, as we start Advent um, today, it's a natural time to stop and to reflect as we wait and contemplate the joyful coming of Christ at Christmas. But waiting is not always chosen or joyful for people facing illness, old age, or many other frustrations of everyday life. And actually, interestingly, I, I managed to read this when I frustratingly caught laryngitis about uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and was laid up for a few days and had to wait for my voice to come back. So it was lovely companion during those long hours. Um, So Margaret knows much about the struggles of life's waiting time as she practiced for many years as a consultant oncologist and as director of palliative care services. Since ordination, she's taught pastoral theology at the Anglican clergy training colleges Cranmer Hall and Ripon College Cudston. And after 25 years in ministry, during which time she shared in parish ministry in the diocese of Sheffield, my hometown, and led the university chaplaincy at Oxford Brooks, she moved back into the NHS and now leads the chaplaincy team in Oxford, where there's a 10-strong t- ecumenical and interfaith team of Christi- Christian and Muslim chaplains. So to hear she's talking to here today to talk to us about her new book. The Grace of Waiting, Learning Patience and Embracing Its Gifts. Margaret will speak for about 40 minutes or so and then we'll have some time for questions and answers and we'll finish promptly at two o'clock when you'll be able to buy a copy of the book and we have a discount price for you today. So would you please welcome Margaret Whip?
1: Thank you very much, Helen, and lovely to see you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a huge pleasure to be with you today in St. Paul's, and I'm grateful to the adult learning team for inviting me to speak to you on Advent Sunday on this very seasonal theme of waiting. Waiting is an essential aspect of our human experience as creatures in time how we move through our life in time, and how at times that life just seems to be put on hold, as for whatever reason we're obliged to wait. When we read about time in the scriptures, we come across, you probably know two different Greek words. There's the word chronos, which refers to time that moves along, as we called chronological time, the time that just keeps keeps on moving, keeps on moving in that steady clockwise forward propulsion from day to day and year to year. And then there's the word kairos, which is the sense of time that has a deeper and more spiritual meaning of particular significance for us now in Advent. And it's the opportune time the moment in time, if you like the fullness of time, the point of intersection between time and eternity. And that more mysterious sense of time, perhaps of God's time, is something that we're drawn to ponder more deeply in Advent. It's something of that spirituality of time that I wanted to explore and to try to embrace through the very practical and very demanding challenge of waiting. How can we reclaim what I call the grace of waiting? How can we learn to embrace patience amongst those everyday frustrations, those frustrations of everyday life, as well as the more immense challenges of suffering or sickness or caring, old age, death? And the grace of Advent, I believe, gives us that hint that somehow in all of our waiting, we are waiting on God. Now I could stop there because that's actually the the core of my message. That's what the book is about. But we have 40 minutes to open up this topic together and share some of the themes and the reflections that I look at in the book that I've drawn from my years mainly of experience in hospital ministry and the enormous spiritual challenges that that brings before us and the life lessons that I've drawn from it. So let me begin then. Um, Thirty years ago, the year 1997, NHS doctors were still wearing white coats, remember that? In their hospital clinics. And I remember (laughs) the scene, preparing perhaps to meet the first patient in an oncology clinic in the morning, opening up the clinic door to see a waiting room of faces before me. And there they're all sitting, the ones that we call patients. Each face a picture of this human, this spiritual, this perennial reality of waiting children playing quietly or not in the corner, adults watching, distracted in their serried ranks of chairs, a man fiddling with his phone and a woman sighing over her crossword. But the minute the door opened, every pair of eyes just hungrily turned towards the door. In in 2005, the the poet Julia Darling died of breast cancer. And she made her name as a poet in that interim period, that waiting period between her diagnosis and death, as an artist and poet of the experience of cancer, the uncertainty, uh, the lack of control, that condition where every day is a kind of waiting, unchosen, for sure, but not always without hope or purpose. And for her, never without creative possibilities. And this is one of her poems which I love and you'll, you'll immediately see why. It's called A Waiting Room in August. We've made an art of it. Our skin waits like a drum, hands folded, unopened. Eyes are low watt light bulbs in unused rooms. Our shoulders cook slowly in dusky rays of light. This morning we polished our shoes so that they should wait smartly. Our legs, our wigs lie patiently on our dignified heads. Our mouths are ironed. Acute ears listen for the call of our names across the room of green chairs and walls. Our names those dear consonants and syllables that welcomed us when we began, before we learned to wait. Call us to the double doors where the busy nurses go. Haven't we waited long enough? Haven't we waited beautifully? Rather wittily as well as poignantly, for me, Julia Darling captures our whole theme for today, that sheer art of waiting, waiting beautifully, or as I would like to say for us in Christian terms, waiting gracefully. And that's the theme that we try to come back to in our church year, in Advent, Lent, the seasons that are the run-up, the waiting time before our big festivals, when we remember and pause to think of the importance and the sheer necessity of waiting. It's hardly fashionable though. In our age of instant gratification to be honest nobody likes to wait. I work in a very busy NHS trust where everybody hates waiting so we have digital systems in place to monitor waiting times at every opportunity If somebody attends a clinic, we measure the minutes that they spend waiting for their appointment. If they come to the ED, we measure the hours it takes for them to see a nurse or a doctor. If they have cancer or they need surgery, we measure the days or the weeks so that we can see whether we are meeting our waiting targets. And we have statistics to gather and to report. But the overriding goal is to reduce or eliminate the time spent waiting for active care. And the idea that waiting is often necessary or even potentially valuable seems desperately old-fashioned and quite unpopular. History, I'm sure, will judge us to be a terribly impatient generation. We're in such a rush, so much of the time, so full of busyness and hurry Our time, my time, is so precious that we count instant gratification as a birthright and waiting as nothing more than a problem, a nuisance, an interruption in the stream of life, a kind of irritating pause button because it breaks our illusion of cheerful control and continuity. And yet, of course... The truth is that so much of our life is spent in waiting. Not only when we're sick, but in many everyday circumstances. This morning, waiting for the rain to stop, <laughs> waiting for the lights to change. We may be waiting for exam results, we may be waiting for a loaf, we may be waiting for the computer to reboot, we may be waiting for a ceasefire, we may be waiting for a holiday, We may be waiting for a creative idea to develop, we may be waiting for a baby, waiting like nothing else reflects to us our complex, uncertain relationship, often uncomfortable relationship with time. And over the years, I've been intrigued when I've met people who challenge this, this rush and this hurry and have deliberately tried to create an alternative mindset, a more graceful approach to waiting. I remember speaking once with a young man. We were queuing together in, in a refectory. He was a young uh, minister from the United Reformed Church. And he told me that many years before, he had made a decision, I think it was a Lenten discipline, that whenever he went shopping, he would always choose the longest queue at the checkout. Deliberately, instead of huffing and puffing about the necessity of waiting, he would embrace this small but telling discipline to gather his peace and patience and wait. And it was his little act of unforced obedience that that intrigued me. What a witness against the the restless hurry that generates so much of our own inner tension and the, the tension of our society. So as a chaplain, I'm very often called to come alongside people in their waiting. I'm not one of the managers who runs the service. It's not my job to bring down those quantitative targets and reduce delays. I'm no longer a clinician whose job it is to move on and expedite treatment. My role is patient and personal, to have an eye to not the quali- quantitative length of waiting, but its qualitative depth. The meaning, the potential value and strength And my ministry is to sustain and support the waiting soul, the person who must grapple with this anguish, this temporal uncertainty, and together to try and chart some path of graceful waiting. And as we learn to wait, something slowly shifts in our souls something of this deeper waiting on God. But how? How do we do it? I've been trying now for for years in conversations with people grappling this question in my own life as I've come up against roadblocks and things that have stopped me in my tracks, digging deep into this experience. What is it? How do we navigate it? What are the skills? of waiting and how do we learn this this virtue, this hard won gift of patience. So I've dug into the, the scriptures, our Christian scriptures, and I've I've drawn out and fed myself and others on some of the very beautiful images of waiting that we have in the scriptures. And this is what I've developed in the book and will offer in at least an in introduction to you today, some of the metaphors of waiting that to me give Um, a kind of anatomy and physiology, if you like, of of waiting, and of patience. Patience is a virtue, (laughs) so they say. You may know how that continues in the gendered form. But it's not something that we're born with. Um, The very opposite, actually, is true. Young infants, and we all know this, are biologically impatient. They have to be to survive. They, they whine and they wail at their mothers to make sure that they are fed and cared for. We are necessarily impatient in life when it comes to matters of basic survival. But learning patience, this art, this grace, as we grow and mature through life, is an acquired skill. It's a virtue that we practice and patiently practice to become fully human and compassionate and wise so my suggestion is that patience is a kind of ascetical uh, virtue something that we must cultivate intentionally and over time and that is only most deeply fulfilled in relation to our relationship with God himself brief aside at this point to say that of course Patience is not always an unquestionably good thing. There is a false kind of patience which sometimes does masquerade as Christian virtue and you know the kind of thing that I mean, that is a kind of acquiescence with injustice or a laziness and a refusal to engage with something that can and should be changed. That is not Christian patience. There is a proper necessity to get on with things sometimes as Christians. But I think that actually uh, that aspect is not something that culturally we are uh, most in danger of. We are a very entitled and very active generation indeed. But real, authentic Christian patience is this kind of spiritual poise that comes from truly aligning ourselves in God's time with God's infinite patience in humility, in gratitude, in compassion. So, to introduce the the book, I've gone for these these lovely word pictures and images of waiting. Waiting as something that is a challenge but also beautiful within which we learn as so many classrooms uh, in the school of patience. And I've taken these metaphors of, of life's waiting times as the Wilderness, the Wine Press, the Watch, the Winter, and the Womb. I'm not going to go through all of them this afternoon, but I'll give you a taster of the Wilderness first, and the, the last one of the Womb, with just a, a gentle invitation to show how, in those classrooms of waiting, we learn to practice uh, the skills of patience. We you know about practice uh, in many areas of life. We have to practice something over a period of time to embed it in our character, in our muscle memories, spiritually or, or physically, a bit like learning to play a musical instrument. Practice takes place over time, it needs patience to develop the practice in this rather nice virtuous circle to become patient. I'll read another poem uh, before I take you into the wilderness and you'll see the loveliness of this about practising a musical instrument. A Lesson in Music by Alistair Reed. Play the tune again. But this time, with more regard for the movement at the source of it and less attention to time, time falls curiously in the course of it. Play the tune again, not watching for your fingering, but forgetting, letting flow the sound till it surrounds you. Do not count or even think, let go. Play the tune again, but try to be nobody, nothing, as though the pace of the sound were your heart beating, as though the music were your face. Play the tune again. It should be easier to think less every time of the notes, of the measure. It is all an arrangement of silence. Be silent, then, and play it for your pleasure. Play the tune again. And this time, when it ends, do not ask me what I think. Feel what is happening strangely in the room, as the sound glooms over you, me, everything. A lesson in life, in practice, in time, in patient building and waiting. We wait in life's wilderness My friend Steve lost his job, and he's in the wilderness of waiting, going nowhere. Terrified of this trackless no-man's land, all his familiar securities swept away. Joan has just finished her cancer treatment, tired, shockingly weak, out of touch with the stream of life that's gone behind her, not knowing what lies ahead, having to wait to know, will the treatment have worked? Or will she be one of those for whom her cancer comes back? Mary's waiting in a miserable marriage. Phil is waiting as a vicar in a bruising, multi-parish benefice. Jill is waiting alongside her daughter with dreadful anorexia. Bill is watching his mother fall apart with dementia each one in their own experience of wilderness, not knowing, not in control, powerless to move things along, unable to make everything all right again. This is the, the wilderness of waiting, a desolate place where we feel lost, often not a clue where we are, the signposts are not there for us to see kind of neither one thing nor the other. It's not the place that we've come from, it's not where we're going to in this strange, liminal, interim space. But there, paradoxically, this wilderness is, is a holy place, a sacred desert in our tradition of necessary reorientation, where down the centuries God has called his best saints into the wilderness for a season of radical transformation and that theme recurs throughout the scriptures the wilderness as a place of calling and searching and purification and real hope so moses meeting god in the burning bush and then leading his people through the wilderness into their promised land john the baptist preaching in the wilderness jesus driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, a place of thoroughgoing preparation for his future work, and generations of saints and mystics and hermits seeking out these desert spaces to embrace the deepest truths of waiting on God. So what happens as we surrender to the wilderness experience? In each classroom I've tried to draw out a couple of practices. These are the the kind of practical aspect of of the book. Practices that we can learn as we go, and a gift that we may receive. And in the wilderness, we must first practice surrender, to let go to the experience. When Jesus was, was driven out into the wilderness, straight after his baptism, he had to leave behind that normal time and space, and surrender to this emerging vocation that was still not clear that was still not certain to surrender to the the will and the word of God and we see that same single mindedness that authentic surrender in those serious believers down the centuries who've gone into that stripped down experience of wilderness out in the deserts of Egypt or the the steppes of Russia beyond Syria, those deserts Fathers and mothers of our tradition, stripped down to the place where they could hear the voice of God and hear that new direction, but often through a radical letting go, a via negativa, that negative capability that the poets speak of, of being open to something that is not yet ours to receive. It's beautiful. Words You probably know um, T.S. Eliot's Quartets and the, the lines that he gives us in East Coker. They're a beautiful summary of the, um, the writings of the mystics like John of the Cross and Avila. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way where that wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is a way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through a way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know, and what you own is what you do not own and where you are is where you are not. So riven with paradox and yet the call to surrender to this wilderness waiting is the first essential practice of patience. But beyond that is the practice of struggle. And anyone with an ounce of spiritual sensitivity knows if you're impatient as I am, that there is nothing like waiting to bring out our inner demons. We all know the phenomenon of, of rage in our society. Road rage, queuing rage, airport rage. Every kind of rage. When we're out of our controlled comfort zone and all those demons come racing out to the surface, erupting. Somehow we've gone beyond the edge of the soul, and the self-hatred or the anger or the fear or the pride or the jealousy, whatever it is, comes pouring out for us to see it exposed. And we must battle with our demons in these waiting periods. At least that's how it was for Jesus. The wilderness is a place of profound struggle, hand-to-hand combat with the, the wild Beasts of temptation, as the Gospels describe it. Of course, in our generation, we would rather distract ourselves. So when we wait, we do our sudokas and we twiddle with with our iPhones. We prefer this shallow distractedness to actually seeing the demons face to face and struggling with what is exposed by our waiting be that our powerlessness, our insignificance, our loneliness, our sheer utter dependence on God. And I believe very urgently in in our impatient generation that we must learn again not to waste these struggles of waiting. Anybody can fritter their lives away in, in distraction and dissipation. But to grapple with the demons and to overcome them is the particular grace that is given to those who are called into the the desert. James writes, come close to God and he will come close to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we must resist. We must engage that struggle and not hide from it. So there's a practice of surrender more passively, there's a practice of struggle more actively. And the great gift that comes in the wilderness to all of us is the surprising gift of sustenance. The rich fruit of patience that does come and sustain us through these times. And again and again we read this in the scriptures, the sheer, lovely, unexpected gratuity of those wilderness times come shining through. The gift of manna and quails in the desert, water streaming from the rock, prophets who are fed by ravens, Jesus himself attended to by angels. This surprising generosity of the desert periods of life, when we are waiting and grace comes to find us in a barren land. Isaiah writes, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sun shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. So that's the kind of pattern. We enter these strange periods of waiting, be it a wilderness or some other classroom, and we learn to do our practice, our faithful practice, perhaps of surrender, perhaps of struggle, but expectantly knowing that God will meet us and give us this gradual grace of patience through sustenance. And what I I urge in the book, and and I encourage myself through life, is let's learn these lessons now in the the shallow, easier areas of life where, you know, just little bumps along the road, just little frustrations are enough to destabilise us. Let's learn to be patient now so that when the big hold-ups of life really stop us in our tracks, we have the grace to draw from. For the major challenges that come along, and in the book I give some little exercises, spiritual exercises, different kinds of prayer, or journaling, or some kinds of physical exercise that involve the body and the mind. There's contemplative baking in there. There's all kinds of little exercises, but just to help us to explore um, this protractedness of time and what it is for us spiritually and in our physical as well as spiritual muscles to be more graceful about our waiting. So I'm not going to describe all the, um, the other metaphors in the book. I've given you an example of the, the wilderness. I go on and talk about the wine press of waiting. The prescient, the anguished times, the, the arduous times of life where we need to learn real steadfastness. The watch, slow watches of the night um, alongside Jesus in Gethsemane or others in there waiting and grieving, learning compassion as much as anything. The cold winter seasons of life, when all the vitality seems to have just gone completely underground and we we must survive somehow with our, our rootedness and our resilience. But as it's Advent, I thought I'd bring you to the, uh, the final image in the book um, as a, a second taste, which is the image of the womb, uh, the maternal womb of waiting. Beautiful, beautiful and fruitful, fertile uh, image. The womb of waiting. Where good things take their time. A friend of mine, it wasn't uh, Rosie, sent a photograph of, of a new baby, gorgeous little chap, dressed in this sweet little uh, blue bodysuit, and the caption across his chest said, I've just done nine months inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely one, said it all.
2: <laughs>
1: it took that long, and the story's only just beginning. of Shardam told us to trust in the slow work of God. And this is our Advent theme of waiting alongside Mary for the birth of her son. (coughs) Waiting with all God's faithful people for the coming of the kingdom. Waiting for that song of the angels that we long for. Waiting for the birth of a new age. Every generation knows that spine tingling. Waiting for the immediateness of human birth and for that ultimate rebirthing that God is bringing about. And the maternal womb, this archetype of loving, laboring, painful, passionate, waiting, life-giving power, and sometimes searing pain brought together in this place of slow but necessary unfolding, a place where all the natural ebbs and flows of life's rhythms work themselves out month by month and year by year as we continue the fertility of our natural and spiritual lives. The Psalms were written well before we had three-dimensional ultrasound, but you know that lovely image in Psalm 139 where the psalmist is able to reflect, you know, before I was in the womb, you knew me. You, it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And that takes time. From that first little ball of cells that finds its way into the womb, makes the placenta. Little embryo seeking its support and its nourishment, slowly growing the axis of a spine, little limbs appearing, little heart beating. We love to see the the ultrasound images as this begins to take place, the little fingers and thumbs that will grasp onto the mother's hands, all taking time to unfold, to go through their necessary stages. Nothing can be skipped along the way. Everything has to happen in its order. And so it is with so much of life, Relationships take time. Wisdom and insight need to deepen. Vocation needs to come to fruition. We need to respect the rhythms of our own and other people's lives and needs and hopes and fears. So let me draw out from this beautiful theme a couple of Practices again, just to tease you into thinking. So, how do we practically do this? And these are tender and, and maternal images that I hope you'll you'll grasp. We we need to practice noticing, noticing gently. What is what is happening expectantly in this waiting time? You know that lovely moment of noticing the first quickening when when a baby are they moving on? Are we noticing it? Just that huge expectancy. Is Something actually moving inside. The first eagerness of that. Or the farmer scanning the fields to see, or the gardener for that matter, to see those first little green shoots popping up. Are they there? Or are they not? You know? just, just noticing those very first things. Behold, says Isaiah the prophet, behold I am doing a new thing, says the Lord. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? notice. And when we're noticing, we're coming into a relationship with something which is not quite yet there. It's there, but it's coming. And this is, I think, one of the beautiful secrets of waiting. There's an angry and a wasteful kind of waiting that is all tension and frustration. And there is this holy attentiveness, which is the maternal, the loving, which is no less tense, in a way, but is welcoming to, to what is, is coming. It's the conviction that something very beautiful is, is coming to birth. It's that same negative capability that I, I mentioned. That's a phrase from Keats, by the way, in case you think I made it up. Um, and I'll, I'll read you this little final section um, from another author, which I love. Um, Helen MacDonald's beautiful book, H is for Hawk. Um, And she writes in this about how her father trained her to wait to see a sparrowhawk. She had to learn to be patient, to notice. For a while, she writes, it had been exciting to stare into the darkness between the trees and the blood orange and the black where the sun slapped crazy paving shadows across pines. But when you are nine, Waiting is hard. I kicked at the base of the fence with my Wellington feet, squirmed and fidgeted, let out, let out a sigh, hung off the fence with my fingers. And then my dad looked at me, half exasperated, half amused, and explained something. He said, It was the most important thing of all to remember this that when you wanted to see something very badly, sometimes you had to stay still, stay in the same place, remember how much you wanted to see it and be patient. He was grave and serious, not annoyed. What he was doing was communicating a grown-up truth But I nodded sulkily and stared at the ground. It sounded like a lecture, not advice. And I didn't understand the point of what he was trying to say. (laughs) Noticing is a very grown up skill indeed, but how beautiful to have that poise and that attentiveness to what is surely, surely coming to be a commitment to the future, which gives, our love in advance. And along with that in the womb goes the practice of nourishing. This is the perfect image for the womb that is designed to nourish new life into its fullness of growth. Deep down in the dark places of the womb, all those tiny microscopic little blood channels that carry food and water to an embryonic child An image of how every kind of healthy waiting requires sustenance and nourishment and nurture along the way. I may be waiting for a clearer sense of of the way forward of my vocation in life, but as I wait I nurture my talents. I may be waiting for some idea, some project to to become more clear, to, to take shape, but as I wait I nourish my imagination. If I have to wait for the weariness of ill health to pass or family tragedy to work its way through unease, as I wait I replenish my spiritual energies. And when I come to wait for the finality of death, to go home to God, then as I wait, I construct a loving legacy nourishing our souls, nourishing and nurturing the spiritual resources of others, incubating the germ of an artistic idea. These are the motherly tasks of many of life's necessary waiting seasons, like the good farmer tending patiently the earth, feeding and nurturing for God's unknown, unreckonable future. And that grace and that gentleness comes, you know, again and again in the parables of Jesus. Seeds silently growing in the earth, the leaven slowly working its way through the whole lump of dough. Nothing can be gained by forcing the pace, but patient, nourishing, waiting. And for us, deeply anchored in Christ himself the vine uh, the, the image in John's gospel the, that phrase to abide in me, the Greek word is very similar to our word for remaining, just staying there, just joined up with those roots deep deep down so that we are nourished for what we are able to give out deeply to others nearly there there's a gift as a chaplain I sometimes draw a deep breath and all my courage and look somebody in the eye and say is there a gift in this is there a gift and almost always something is named that is a very precious gift of patience even in the worst of waiting the gift of naming is that wonderful culmination for for all parents Um, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When a baby comes to to its fullness of birth, there's the lovely privilege of naming a child. As a chaplain, I'm often there for a baptism, not always in in easy circumstances, but my goodness, the look on parents' faces uh, when they look first into the eyes of the child and give with great care, with great individuality, the name. What's in a name? (laughs) In the scriptures, a great deal in a name. As we give a name, we are naming a person, a future, a hope, uh, often with huge resonances of God's promise. In the scriptures, remember that names are often proclaimed by angels, uh, the name of Christ. The name of many of the prophets, full of blessing and promise. Paula Freire says, The naming of the world, which is an act of creation and recreation, is impossible unless it's infused with love. So we name. We name our blessings. And I hope as we learn and practice patience, we can name not just that we have become more patient people in life, but that our waiting has brought us in touch with the God who eternally waits for us. God who is long-suffering and full of mercy. The God who has waited for us from the dawn of creation. The God who hangs on the cross to wait for us. The God, the Spirit, who waits with all creation groaning for its final revelation. Wait for the Lord, says the psalmist. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yea, wait for the Lord.
0: I'll just stand up so I can see the room over here. We'll move straight to questions. It might not be a chance to have everyone's questions, but please do raise a hand if you've got a question. Yes. I'd actually encourage you to tell us some of these practices because um, in my own experience, lot. I thank you so much for what you said. It resonates so much with me. But one of the things I've found to be terribly useful is to take 10 deep breaths and just... Let it all happen. You know, there's too much of us. I've got to do something here. And I'd just be interested to know what suggestions you have.
1: Thank you very much. So that was a question about actual practices in, in the process of our, our frustration and our waiting. And in the, in the book, I give some, as if you like, sort of exercises in abstract um, that we can practice when we're not having to wait so that we have these, these skills later in life. But many of them, if you like, take away skills that, that we can then have ready uh, off the shelf, as it were. And I think your example of taking deep breaths is, is absolutely excellent. Um, many of us nowadays are very aware of the, the skills and practices of what is called mindfulness. Um, it's you know, very fashionable in, in our very busy age for very good reasons. And interestingly, at the moment, as a hospital chaplain, I'm getting about four or five requests every week to do staff training in mindfulness. That's how mindless the the busyness of the NHS has become. So it's highly topical. We are in a very, very fast-paced world where the habits of pausing effectively rather than distractively are not there. So some of the skills, as, as you suggest, are very simple ones of grounding ourselves physically and through physically grounding ourselves Uh, drawing attention to our spiritual state and the breath in all the religious and spiritual traditions is is a great anchor uh, to return to that. Um, But in the book, I give other more slowly paced ones, um, going for an attentive walk, what might be called a a mindful walk in the jargon or what I call a wilderness walk in, in my jargon. But learning to encounter our environment in a more attentive way in a more surrendered way, so that when we are beyond our physical comfort zones in whatever experience of life, we, we have that unguarded openness and surrender, and I, I do think we are so protected and cushioned in a lot of our lives that we need to practice these things. Um, this was, I think this was my impetus for writing the book, that I found people so unprepared, shockingly unprepared spiritually for the crises of life where they were completely off their guard because they have been so cushioned. Uh, So to practice these skills, I think, is essential.
0: But there's a a paradox there, isn't there, Margaret? Because we are so cushioned and protected, we're starved of the experience of receiving grace. And when we have those moments of, of being helpless and suddenly being apprehended by grace. I always feel stupid. I think God must be handing, holding out this grace to us all the time, and I'm crashing through life, missing the opportunity of being nourished by God's grace. Question over here. I mean, as an educator
2: myself, I can myself to teach my learners tactics, ways to plan, ways to do things throughout our life. But you just mentioned, that, uh, I am shocked by the empathy of my learners when it comes to certain things that don't go their way or crises. Is that because subjects never come to, me and that we no longer talk about illness and daily ailments and maybe even death? Uh, because again, I'm surprised at how people can't seem to cope with the slightest of things that may get wrong in their lives even if they turning up late or maybe someone has sadly died or is seriously ill or somebody hasn't gone their way it's like a sort of this new generation of young people that we have I think we call them, what's it? The, crystal, the flake, slow generation, because they crumble at the slightest criticism um, or constructive feedback or uh, any issues that may really impact on their personal things that go on and I'm just wondering is it because we're no longer talking about these things whereas my parents grew up with such travesty and disaster and tragedy that maybe now we are protecting our generations and consequently I'm
1: coming across the same issues that you have. Thank you so just to summarise that's a reflection from somebody in teaching with, with young people and the struggles of a younger generation particularly to accept uh, what we've been describing as these interruptions into life, the, the crises and just the sheer difficulties that come along the way and without wishing to judge generations that have different struggles from our own um, perhaps each generation has to learn some particular skills and virtues rather more urgently than others. So I, th- I think that tunes in very much to, to what I've, I've wanted to write about. And I think that's why I've drawn on um, our own, in, in Christian terms, the ascetical tradition, uh, which is very countercultural. And it, it is this um, <coughs> deliberate choice not to have things easy, it's the deliberate choice to encounter the harder things of life and to encounter the exposed things of life and to work and to struggle with them. And I, I'm I'm with you. I think that is very countercultural. Yes. The ones who have faith or yes. have a belief
2: any system do well, yeah. but I'm coming across more people now that have absolutely no structure. They have they have nothing. They don't even understand somebody else who may have a faith,
1: regardless of what it is. Do we have another question? Um, I was interested... When you mention the wrong sort of patience, yes. patience in, in the face of injustice, but but I'm very concerned about um, other sorts of wrong sort of
0: patience. there's the patience of stoicism, which yes. was drummed into my generation. Um, there's the patience of suppression,
1: very prevalent in Christian congregations. I found.
0: Um, There's the patience of stagnation. Do you do you look at those in in any degree
1: in your in your book? Thank you, Chris. That's a a question about again the wrong kinds of patience, which I I touch on for exactly that reason. Um, As I suggest, we we are a generation which is is, you know given to impatience rather than patience. But absolutely, there is a wrong kind of patience. Uh, which which colludes, uh, or acquiesces, or is is simply lazy uh, in in the face of things that should be challenged, particularly injustices, and that may, as you suggest, be uh, in the church. I think, more interestingly, this perhaps goes back uh, to something you were saying there about the particular character of our generation. You mentioned Stoicism there, which I I tackle quite a lot in the book, because the Stoics were very fond of patience. That was their, their lead virtue but it was different from Christian patience. And I I was interested to look at this. Um, The Stoic um, is interested in their own endurance, their own capacity to take it on their own terms and in their own strength as a personal and individual character strength. And a fully Christian patience is, is not an isolated kind of macho patience of that sort of Stoic fortitude. It's a deep reliance on God, as as Helen was saying, and on God's sustenance. So there is a a much more relational, a much more tender, a much more dependent uh, form of Christian patience, which um, softens the soul rather than kind of hardens it up for for conflict. And I, I think, again, our generation has a bit too much of the hardness and the stoic and if we do try to gain virtue in our generation, it's, it's often through trying to prove it in some way. I'm thinking again of your secular younger people. Um, whereas to have this deeper sense of a loving and trusting dependence on God to provide for us, I think is a very deeply Christian uh, thing, which is proved uh, through a life of grace so that's that's how i disentangle those aspects there's a lot more we could say but um, i
0: think that is an important distinction thank you Now well, i think we could all do with just having a conversation with you all afternoon but just so we can get as many questions in as possible do keep your question as short as you can is there any anyone else who'd like to yes oh, thank you for your talk i think the business community benefit from it because for the past
2: few years there's um, a lot of hype around this idea of failing fast, and so you'll see um, um, on you know, even people in the corporate world launch projects and very quickly um, move to something else without taking the time to you know, understand what, what can be learned from it or how it can be you know adapted into something perhaps bigger. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't sure if the NHS is trust.
1: Very helpful comment thank you so that was somebody observing from the business community uh, our impatience to to move on too quickly particularly from failure and not to pause uh, to learn from the the lessons Um, I don't tackle that uh, directly but it it reminds me of some of the reflections uh, I developed in the section on the winter uh, when something has been lost and in my context I was mainly thinking about it in terms of bereavement loss uh, where there is an irrevocable loss, something has gone and it is not going to come back. And we, we have to withdraw into that winter season um, where it is cold and it is fruitless for a while and all that can happen seems to be driven way below the surface. Um, but in those seasons something very important of processing uh, takes place. And for me, um, and I would be interested in a longer conversation with you about this in terms of business models, I, I try to draw very much on the natural seasons of life because there's so much to teach us. We, we are creatures of rhythm and of time and we are not made to rush on until what has died has had the chance to die back. And in, in nature, um, you, you may know this, that there are certain plants, you know, if they don't get a cold enough winter, when it comes to spring, they're not going to grow properly. And that would be the same in, in business cycles. If you haven't actually allowed that which needs to properly die, it will, it will go rotten on you. The same sort of rottenness will take hold for the next, next thing, and you carry on then the, the contamination, if you like, of the past into the future. So we need these um, sterilizing, purifying seasons before we rush on. Perhaps that's a way we could develop. That's it. very interesting. Thank you for, for that observation.
0: Just time maybe for one more question. I thought we are re- nearly at two o'clock. Margaret, why do you think we're so bad at learning this? We're s- it's extraordinary that um, we seem to put ourselves through the mill of this again and again. Um, Yeah. Why do we, as human beings, make it hard work? It
1: is hard work. Um, Nobody likes hard work. You know, it's back to the, it's back to the piano playing analogy. You know, did you do your exercises? No, quite. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sympathetic to this. I I mentioned en passant, you know, we are actually wired to be impatient. there is a drivenness in us that has to survive. So I, I think we must be gentle with ourselves as we learn these things. And I think God is gracious with us as, as a parent with, with children, to give us time to learn these things through life. So maybe my, my parting shot would be, let's, let's not be hard on ourselves or other, but give ourselves time to, to learn and grow in patience
0: as we mature. Thank you, and thank you very much for giving us your time today. Can we thank Margaret?